following presentation was recorded live by the Jewish Ethics Institute. Obviously, as we know, Ebola has been uh, going around the world. Thank Literally. God. Um, it hasn't uh, reached Dallas, it's reached Texas, but hasn't uh, come to Houston yet. Hopefully it won't. Um, but there's a lot of issues that came up. It's a scare last night. Really? In Houston? Mm -hmm. Someone's taken to the hospital, suspected Ebola, oh, yeah, testing yeah. negative. Okay. And as, Thank God. As we speak. See, that prayer helps. Then um, your way, just bring it there. So, uh, so the, the, there's many issues that can, came up uh, during the course of uh, when it was spreading around. Few, and uh, what's scary about it is most of the people affected, as we've seen so far, at least in this country and really all over the world, have been healthcare professionals. People who are actually trying to help other people. Um, and the question is really, um, you don't want to deter people from helping other human beings. Obviously, not such a good thing. Um, but on the other hand, how do you weigh the risks involved um, when people were sending people overseas um, to to Africa to help to help other human beings that are in danger? And even in, in most of the cases, there's probably either healthcare workers or obviously family members. Because again, if you have a child with Ebola, obviously the mother's going to be taking care of the child. Um, you can't tell a mother not to take care of her own child in situations like that. So, so uh, the question is. Again, we're going to talk about, try to address from the legal and halachic perspective, Jewish law perspective, how does that play over and what kind of risks are, is one um, permitted to take or obligated to take or maybe not permitted to take um, to when you're endangering your own health? Um, that's the question here. So a few of the questions I wrote down is to what extent should one risk contracting the disease in order to treat others? Um, is there a difference between healthcare providers and others? That means um, maybe healthcare providers have more um, an obligation or permission to 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 risk their own health because that's what they do for a living. So we'll discuss that. Is it ethical to force someone into quarantine? So that's a legal question, obviously. Also, um, not just an ethical question. Legally, obviously, um, is that is that compromising someone's rights? Um, even though they might be endangering other members of society, does that give us a right? to lock them up and to say they have to stay quarantined. As we saw when that uh, nurse, I think it was in Maine, right, she, they, she, they put her in a tent, she couldn't leave, they didn't even let her bike ride, she was very upset. She protested, she took a bike ride out, and cops were following her and trailing her. So how, how does that work legally? Um, can we curtail someone's rights in that manner just because there's a threat of risk um, involved? And maybe even a minimal threat, the question is, and they were claiming science doesn't even back up the risk involved there. So how does that work? How do we ascertain um, when we can quarantine someone and when we can? Um, D, is, is it ethical for a government or other organization to force inoculation on, on the people in order to prevent the spread of the, spread of the disease? So obviously, we don't have inoculation yet for Ebola, although the uh, things are, they're working on various experimental treatments. I've, um, I've heard that actually, uh, R.J. Reynolds, the tobacco company, owns the rights to the current most promising treatment. Some people are not happy about it either. That's a side, <laughs> side issue. Um, so the question is again, how, um, um, can we, once there is an inoculation available, can we force people to be inoculated? Um, and how does that work? It's not only relevant to Ebola, relevant to many other diseases. Can you, um, it's a big question even in the state of Texas, um, can you force uh, people to be inoculated for various prevention of various diseases. Um, 
Is it ethical for a school or a synagogue to ban those who are not inoculated from attending classes or services, and those who refuse inoculation do so on grounds that they are concerned about the side effects? So this again, this is there's been a case in Texas again, not relevant to Ebola, but to other inoculations about this. Um, and G is what does one do if there are limited supplies of medications or healthcare providers to treat everyone? So that's a question of triage, really, of who gets treated first. Um, more of an ethical question than a legal question in most cases, but it could be has some legal realms. So, so just to start off with, um, okay. okay, so to start with, there's obviously not much written on Ebola in Jewish sources, didn't exist, uh, but believe it or not, and this is something that uh, we've discussed many times here, it blows my mind, you're always going to find precedents within Jewish law we're always going to find precedents within Jewish law um, when it comes to to deciding many of these uh, many of these questions. So the first thing is the question of, of uh, risking life. Let me address that for a second, which is a, a fascinating question. And if we think we've discussed it here in the past, um, not in this context, but in other contexts, in general, it's good to know that in Jewish law there is the biblical law that we have an obligation to rescue. Someone's life is in danger in Western society, Western law. Um, there is no obligation. You, if someone you drive into work, you see someone drowning in the bayou, car you know flips over, goes to the bayou, is an accident. You can just smile, wave, and, and continue on to your meeting. Um, if you're late to work, and and you did nothing wrong. It might be a jerk, but uh, as far as legally, there you, there's no violation. In Jewish law, um, there is a biblical obligation, which which states very clearly in Leviticus. It says, One shall not stand idly by when their fellow's blood is being shed. Um, and that means you have an obligation to rescue. Um, again, if you're able to, as we'll discuss. And if you have the ability, if you're sitting in a restaurant and you know the Heimlich maneuver and someone's choking, then you have an obligation to do that. You can't just continue, um, you know, or on the airplane, the famous movie scene where people, you know, the doctor's sitting there and, you know, they say, is there a doctor in the house? Someone just collapsed and, and the guy just, you know, puts his paper in front of his face, starts uh, reading, you know, make believe he's, he's engrossed in his paper because he doesn't have malpractice insurance on the airport. Right, so, so that would be prohibited in Jewish law. Um, again, we're saying it's a, biblic it's a biblical violation. If one does not come to the rescue of someone when they have the ability to save someone's life, um, that is a, this violation of this negative commandment to not stand idly by. Um, just as an aside, first of all, as we, we all, I'm sure we all heard what happened this morning in Israel. Um, in, in Arnof, there was a terrorist attack in a synagogue, four people were killed. First of all, we will do this class in merit of those who are injured. Um, but I actually spoke to someone. Someone called me, who, Houstonian, who was actually walking into that synagogue at 7 a.m. Just mentioning it because it's relevant to the class. And he, he, he this the minion that this happened to. The service was a 6:30 minion. In Israel, they have what's called a minion factory. They call them it's these buildings where they constantly have, you know, every time, any time you need, any time of the day you need to pray. There's always a minion going on. So this place has a minion at 6.30 and then at 7 a.m. So he usually goes to the 7 a.m. minion, so he said he, he was going on his merry way, coming to pray, and uh, there was people, all of a sudden he saw two people running out and talented feeling, thought it was a joke or something, and then they started screaming, Arabs. And then a guy came out all bloodied, and he, this guy was telling me he actually stopped, and he took off his shirt, he wrapped it around the guy, his ear was cut off, because they used, they used axes, I don't know if you saw in the news today, terrible um, story. So he, this guy's ear, so he took his shirt off and wrapped it around his head. So this, I mean, this, and then afterwards he didn't realize the, the terrorist was still inside. So this guy risked his own life 
in a certain sense, to save, to help this, this injured person. Um, he, after, he didn't realize, but afterwards he started hearing gunfire. When the cops came, there was a shootout inside. He was standing right, out the synagogue, right outside the synagogue. Um, so, anyone, anyone know Josh White? Yeah. You know Josh White? He was a barista in Starbucks here who, who went to Israel to Yeshiva. Myla in the San Felipe Starbucks, no? Oh, yeah, I know. Yes, he, yeah. was, he was the one who called me this morning. So in any case, so, so the point is, he, this person risked his life to save other people's lives. And we're going to talk about that. It's not necessarily a good thing in Jewish law. And although there's an obligation to, to uh, save a life, as we're saying, if you have the ability, just like and we discussed here in the past, any, you're not obligated to, to risk your own life for any mitzvah in the Torah. It means for any one of the commandments, any one of the actually 610 commandments, you're not, there's no obligation to risk your life. So that means, let's say, by keeping Shabbat, observing Shabbat, you're going to risk your life because you have to go to the hospital. Of course, there's no question. You have to, not only are you not allowed to um, observe Shabbat in that situation, it becomes a mitzvah to violate Shabbat. There's no commandments. The Torah, there's an explicit verse in, also in Leviticus, um, chapter 23, I believe, which states, we have to live by the commandments. It means there's no obligation to risk your life for a commandment in the Torah. We're not like other religions. We don't uh, have jihad. We don't... Um, <laughs> sacrifice our life for the religion, except in there's a few extreme cases and three three exceptions to the rule, which we discussed here in the past, which is murder, that means you don't kill someone, even if you're li in order to save your own life. Um, idolatry, which is um, worship pagan gods, you have to give up your life for that. And the, other, the third one is adultery, various other sexual prohibitions, um, which you know, if someone puts a gun to your head and says, sleep with this married woman, Alan, you hear this? Someone puts a gun to you as a sleep with this married woman, you have to risk, you have to give up your life before sleeping with that woman. Okay, that's the only three exceptions to the rule. Um, otherwise, otherwise, there's no obligation to uh, to give up your life. So the same would apply to this obligation of do not stand idly by while your brother's blood is being shed. That's It's only obligatory if there's no risk to your life. Anytime there is a risk to, to one's life, you have to define risk, obviously, um, then there wouldn't be an obligation. Okay, so technically speaking, so it goes so far to say that uh, there's a there's a response from the Ridvaz. Ridvaz, his name was it's an acronym for Rabbi David Ben something with a Z, Zuari or something like that. In either case, he's what? Uh, I've written down it somewhere. So anyway, he he discusses the case. Um, he he was posed this question with an actual case where someone. Um, was going to give up their limb to save someone else's life. Actually, cut off the, the <coughs> dictator in that country, threatened to cut off this guy's limb unless, to, they'll, or else they'll kill this other person. So, in any case, he responds in that response, and he says there very clearly, he says, not only is it prohibited to risk your life, obviously, cutting off one's limb is a risk in those days for sure. Um, this was in the probably 1600s, a risk to one's life. He says that someone who does that is, if you do. You know, let's say you say, I'm going to do it anyway. I want to help my friend. I'm going to risk my life. He says, he calls him what's called a chassid shote, which means a pious fool. It's very nice. You want to be uh, extremely, um, you know, a hero and, and risk your life. He says, you're a fool. The Torah does not allow you. It's prohibited to risk your life. Where, you, where again, with this serious risk, as we're going to talk about, to your life, even to save someone else. So it's very fascinating. Western culture, view people as heroes um, who risk their lives to save other people's lives. Let's say the guy who takes the bullet for the president. In, in Jewish law, you're, we're saying you're a pious fool. What if uh, it's just so 
so, save an entire Jewish community? So we'll get to it. That's a good question. So it could be as, as a society, the, the laws change, but that's a very good point. But in general, what we're saying is um, to risk your life to save someone, again, to true risk, and we have to define that, and it's not easily definable, true risk to your life to save someone else's life is not only not permitted, it, it not only is not obligatory, it might not even be permitted in some cases. Um, and, and we said, according to this response, he says you're a pious fool. So that's, I always say, that's why you find very few Jewish Secret Service agents, um, besides that they're five foot three usually. <laughs> and, but I'm saying, because again, taking the boat for the president is not necessarily the right thing to do, according to Jewish law. Again, you couldn't, there are, um, some of the understanding is that, you know, that's c cases of war, for example, in this case this morning, it's a terrorist attack, it's an issue, and you're in a war situation, and that could be, some might define, that some ethicists might define, um, you know, obviously the president being shot as, as a war, that may be a declaration of war in some instances, so that might be different, because war, obviously, war is about risking your life for your country or whatever it may be, so obviously, we, and the Torah does discuss war, so war is, has different rules than talking about in a regular, everyday situation. Okay, but, but your point is, is well taken, and, and we're dealing with saving a whole society, that might be different, and we'll, we'll get there. That's a very good point. This is person to person. Yeah, we're talking about as far as individuals. So saving an individual's life, what we're saying is, is according to some, is, might be problematic. Um, um, might be problematic. Even if it's your own child? Oh, so that, that is a good point. So the, the way it works is your wife, at least your wife, the Torah, the Torah discusses, um, not the Torah, the Talmud says there's a concept in Jewish law called Ishto Kagufa. You and you, a married couple, they're like one unit. So it's, it's like saving your own life. It doesn't discuss explicitly children, but you can apply probably the same rules. So you're not your mother in law, mother in law, you can. <laughs> but, but I'm saying your wife or, or children you view as one family unit in Jewish law. And therefore, it's like saving your own life. So I can risk my own life in many cases. Um, obviously, you have to weigh the risks and the benefits usually. But you can risk your own life to save your own life, right? So therefore, the same would apply to to family members. Again, immediate family members. So that's a that's a that's a good point too. Okay. So now there are there, is, there are disagreements. Not everyone agrees with this Ridvas. Um, there is a in the in the Jerusalem Talmud, known as the Talmud Yerushalmi, does bring a case where a someone one of Rabbi's students was kidnapped and. Uh, and he said he's going to go rescue him, even at the risk of his own life. And that is brought down in certain commentaries in the Code of Jewish Law, do mention that. And it seems to be a difference of opinion as to whether you can risk your life. So there are, but it's the minority opinion. Um, in general, we go with this, this advice, which means that one does, is not obligated to risk their life. This, by the way, has many, uh, a lot of ramifications in, in medical ethics. Um, for example, just the question of, am I obligated to donate an organ, a less live organ donor? kidney to save, to save someone else as a Jew, meaning we're saying since the verse in the Torah says, do not stand idly by if your, brother, if your brother's life is in danger does that make me obligated to donate a, a kidney or whatever other organ um, one can donate and stay alive where there's a risk involved so, so there too they discuss that um, again, the risk is minimal, so it's not obligatory, most of the authorities say um, but it is still as a mitzvah to do it, if you can save someone's life with minimal risk to your life and of course, you should do it, but again, it's not obligatory. Okay, so it becomes an like sort of a, it's it's a nice thing to do, it's a beautiful thing to do, but it's not it's not obligatory, even though the verse says don't stand idly by. So again, because there's a risk involved, it downgrades it and makes it not obligatory, since the risk is not 
is not a great risk, let's say with a kidney, one, someone who's a healthy person donating one kidney, in that case they say it's still a nice thing to do, a mitzvah, but not obligatory. Okay, but that's a side point, um, relevant to the same topic. Um, so the, the, the question is, so there are, I did find a response somewhere, a, again, this was written around 20 years ago, it doesn't mention what disease he's talking about. There was a question of, again, doctors posed this question to a rabbi in Israel. His name was Tzitz Eliezer, Eliezer Waldenberg. He was the, um, basically the rabbi, he lived across the street from Shari Tzedek Hospital in Jerusalem, and therefore he got ma um, many of the medical ethics questions that came about. He published, he has around, uh, around 18 volumes of medical responses just dealing with questions that he got um, living across the street from Shari Tzedek Hospital. That's why rabbis shouldn't live in the hospitals. <laughs> but uh, but uh, the, the bottom line is, so he has a response where he discusses this at length, how much risk may, may a physician take, um, an infectious disease physician who's dealing on a daily basis with patients. So um, he, he says a few interesting things. Um, one thing he discusses, there, and I think, I don't, know, I don't remember if we had this topic here in the past, but there is a discussion in general um, the, the question really is, first of all, does, is a physician more obligated, as we mentioned in one of the questions? Because I took this job as a healthcare worker, does that mean now I'm more obligated than anyone else? Because the Torah's obligation to save a life is across the board. Happens to be physicians have more knowledge and they're able to save more lives, therefore there's going to be more situations where they have the obligation. Because I, you know, I can't, uh, I don't know how to use a defibrillator, I don't know how to, you know, do things or it's really how, depending on your knowledge, meaning if I don't know how to swim, like we're saying, someone's drowning, so I don't have an obligation to save them because I'm going to risk my life by jumping in. But if someone does know how to swim, or they're a better swimmer, so they, then they're going to have that obligation. So it's really the same with doctors. They don't have more of an obligation to save someone, just that they have the ability to save more people, and therefore, um, in essence, there are more contexts where they're going to be obligated to save lives. Um, so the question then becomes, what are they obligated to put themselves at risk? The fact that they signed up for this job, does that make them more, give them more obligations? So, so what he discusses is, he seems to imply that yes, the fact that they did take this job knowing the risks involved, that in itself obligates them um, f um, to save lives, even where normal people wouldn't be obligated um, because, the, because of the level of risk. So he says as long as it's not a sure risk to their life, meaning it's not a, a certain risk is the way he puts it, and a doctor would be obligated to risk his life, different than other people, okay? Um, what he does discuss is also there's another concept, which is um, that there is certain, even though normally in general, and this is, comes up in general, were you at we the talk last night? I wasn't. Oh, is he saying that the doctor has to take more risk, or that the doctor is capable of doing more? <coughs> well, no. Well, that everyone agrees. The doctor is capable of doing more. The question is, he's saying there, because he signed up for this job, he's saying there is okay. more risk that they're obligated to take. Again, they don't have to literally risk their life, but if but if there's, he says what he calls, as long as it's not certain risk, okay, to their life, then they would be obligated to do whatever they can. Obviously, they have to, you know, prevent whatever preventative measures they they can mm -hmm. do not to contract the disease, but they do have somewhat of more of an obligation in that sense. Um, what he goes on to say is there's another concept discussed, which is, in general, we're not allowed to risk our lives, even your own life. So meaning, uh, again, it's, uh, let's say cigarette smoking, for example, today would be, according to Jewish law, most all of the, the authorities would tell you it's prohibited because clearly we know today after the Surgeon General's report and, and after the many studies that it's dangerous to your life. Um, so that would be prohibited according to Jewish law, okay, that, that's, that's a given. 
Um, obviously, again, we had, you have to define risk because yeah, there's a study for everything today. Fried chicken uh, can kill you, according to many studies, right? <laughs> so, so obviously, I wouldn't be giving it to you if, if uh, there's really a risk. So, so, so you have to define risk, right? You need to define risk, and, and there's a lot of gray area. It's not clearly defined what's considered a risk. You know, clearly driving on the 610 is, is a risk, right? So you say, you know, I can't drive on the 610, um, especially in Houston, driving or Miami, pretty bad. Um, I don't know which one's worse. Tel Aviv's <laughs> worse, <laughs> okay. so, uh, so in either case, what's considered a risk? So there are certain things that obviously are called minimal risk, which are obviously allowed. But anything considered a serious risk is going to be a problem. Um, the, the point being is, but what it discusses, there's, there are certain career choices people make where there are risks involved. Okay, um, someone uh, is a tree cutter, he climbs up a tree, that's the, actually the Talmud gives that example. So the Talmud says that a risk to make money is, is allowed to a certain extent. More of a risk. We do allow someone, if that's their job, and they're doing it not just, for example, the, the response I saw was discusses actually hunting relevant to Texas. Can, is it okay to go hunting? Not leaving aside the animal, animal issues, killing animals, um, and obviously it's not kosher if you kill, if you shoot an animal, but the issue is just that's the danger, especially if you're going with Dick Cheney, right, so, so the question is just the danger in hunting, is that allowed as, as far as the risk is concerned? So the note of Yehuda, this was written, his name was Yehuda Lowy, he was the chief rabbi of Prague in the 1700s, he wrote, a, he was asked this question about hunting, and uh, by the way, I get this question all the time here in Texas as a rabbi, um, people ask me this, uh, the question is, he says, you know, he discusses the animal issues, he discusses all the issues. At the end, he says the main issue would be the risk involved. That would be the reason to prohibit it, the risk to the human, not to the animal, um, because hunting is dangerous. Um, you're going in the forest, he's talking about being also being attacked by animals. Um, but he says, if the person is doing it, that's their livelihood, let's say they're, they're a furrier or they're, they're killing animals for the, for the hide, so he says then it would be permitted, because taking risk for your job there is, we allow more permission. So that same, that you can take that response and apply it to the physician. Same might be applicable here. Um, if you're taking a risk where, if the, that's the doctor's job, is infectious disease doctor, or his job is to heal people, obviously there's always gonna be risk of infectious disease whenever you're healing a patient. So he says that also would be a reason to allow it. And um, he, d he actually br brings an interesting case, which I put here, which, um, which was written by a, a, the chief rabbi, uh, chief rabbi, the rabbi in Baghdad, um, this was in the, in the 1800s, his name was Chaim Palaji, and they had a case there, it doesn't say what the disease was, I actually found, I didn't have this book, so I quoted, so the internet is an unbelievable tool, so they, there's, a, there's a site on the internet called hebrewbooks.org, it has every single Hebrew, over 60,000 books that were scanned in, the problem is, so I found this response, and I printed it out, but it's, I can't read it. Even I can't read it. It's it, uh, taken from a book that was printed in the 1700s. That's blurry. So, but I did get the question. So this is a fascinating question okay. in the 1800s. The question that was posed. you get the questions, not the answers. <laughs> I have part of it, the first few lines I picked out. So, so he says, this question was posed. Um, he says that he was asked by members of a synagogue. Actually, he was asked by a doctor who he who was treating, he doesn't, again, he doesn't say, he says it was some type of plague in the city, and in Baghdad, and the, the doctor treated a bunch of patients, then he came to synagogue on Shabbat, and uh, the, the, the congregants refused to let him in. They said, listen, you treated all these patients, we don't want to, 
you don't want to catch the disease. You might have the disease, and there was a risk about they wouldn't let him into the shul. They wouldn't let him to the synagogue. And he came to the rabbi um, complaining, saying, listen, you know, what's the law? Do they have a right to, to kick me out of the synagogue just because I treated infectious disease patients? So literally, I mean, that's what you see. There's nothing new under the sun. The lady, the doctor in Maine, the woman in Maine who was uh, quarantined, same question we got here today. So, um, so the, key, the doctor said, listen, I agree if they want to put me behind the machitza, want to put me behind the you know, partition and keep me in a separate room, but at least let me into the synagogue. He agreed to do that. The question was, um, can, do they have the right to kick him out of the shul? Okay. Um, and he had paid his dues already. <laughs> so I couldn't again. I couldn't read it. It's five pages of answers that I, I couldn't totally couldn't read. But the first paragraph is actually clear. So when I got out of a few, I picked out a few words here and there. Basically, at the end of the day, he he goes through it actually from a monetary point of view. He says that the obligation to to this is a basic fundamental difference between Jewish ethics and secular ethics in Western ethics and. and in legalities also, is that in Jewish, in, in our world, it's all about rights, as we're saying. Does a person have a right? Um, if I'm da am I damaging you, etc., it's a tort issue. Here he's saying whenever, in Jewish law, whenever it's a tort issue, the obligation is on the person, the damager, to make sure he doesn't damage. Okay, so he says that this doctor has to make sure, he has to make sure that he's not going to affect them. And therefore, if he, if he, they might not have a right to kick him out of the synagogue, but if he goes into the synagogue, he has to make sure he's in a position, like we're saying, behind a partition where he won't be um, infecting any other people. So it's his obligation, he says. He has to build a partition, and um, that's what I picked up again from a few little parts of it. I mean, how do you know he's infected at all? He doesn't, but there's a risk. He treated infectious patients, and therefore he's saying, he's, saying they, he's saying it's not the synagogue's right, but he has an obligation to make sure he doesn't infect other people, and therefore, if by going into the synagogue he might infect other people, then he shouldn't go. That's what I deemed again whatever I could pick up from the mm. little here and there. If there's a risk of love. Um, so, and by the way, there's this extensive, what's interesting, extensive writings that I found. Um, there was many plagues throughout Eastern Europe in, in the 1700s, 1600s, about uh, there was cholera, the famous cholera plague went on for like six, seven years. So I found that's a response to discussing, first of all, f about fasting on Yom Kippur. There was a famous story with a um, ethical, the leader of the ethical movement, his name was Israel Salanter, Israel Salanter, who got up on Yom Kippur in shul. This was during a cholera ep epidemic. People refused to break their fast. So he got up in the shul on Yom Kippur uh, from the pulpit and took a piece of cake and made, made kiddush in front of the whole shul. And he said, everyone has to go make kiddush. And you know, made everyone go out during prayer service on Yom Kippur because he felt like fact, if they're fasting, that would lower their um, or the immune, yeah, the immune system or whatever it is, their immunity to the disease, to cholera, and therefore you force them to break their fast. And there seems to be, have been a disagreement in the story I read, and uh, he actually had to leave, because of his <coughs> ruling, he had to leave town the next year. <laughs> they kicked the rabbi out, because so, people weren't happy with that. There seemed like there was disagreement amongst the rabbis. But it's fascinating, so there's a lot of discussion. At least they were still there the next year. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. So at least we're there the next year to argue about it. <laughs> no, that year what? it seems there was an argument. It says the Betin, the Betin, uh, the court of this took place in Vilna, by the way, in 1700s. It says there were there were there were 83 synagogues in Vilna at the time, and they hung up these posters saying how 
that people should break their fast. And then the Betin disagreed with Rabbi Salanter. Became a big argument, and he ended up having to leave town, seemingly because of this argument. But, but uh, that aside, but there's another. So I found many. There's a lot of writings in how to deal with it. And one of the situations, actually, in the synagogue, and this was in a different town. I read that they actually put they put doctors in every synagogue. They posted doctors, and the doctor would check the person. This is on Yom Kippur. The person came to show on Yom Kippur to de to decide if they're able, they have the ability to fast or not, if they're healthy enough to fast, based on the, the assumption of the, you know the the evaluation of the doctor. So you see that clearly the doctors were treating. Okay, and the same thing with this case, um, where where Rafael Pelagi in Baghdad, you see. He doesn't discuss whether the doctor should treat or not. That's not up for discussion. It seems like it's obvious the doctor should be pre treating these patients with infectious disease. The question is only um, as far as um, can we let him to the synagogue? Do they have a right to, to, to kick him out of the shul? But as far as treating the patients, it seems like it's obvious that they all treated the patients. Okay, and one, one last thing I did see what you mentioned before, um, that when it comes, there's a different issue. When, when it comes to saving a society, very different than saving the individual. All the, all the cases we were discussing was when you have someone who's risking their life to save another individual. But when you have someone who, as an individual, could risk their life to save a whole society, which is clearly in Africa, that's, there's no question, you're saving a country, a country of Liberia or Kenya, wherever, wherever it is, you're not just saving an individual. And you, over there, when you have to stop the disease, when you're talking about Ebola, you're literally saving a whole society. So that's different, that is different Jewish law. In, in, what you brought up before. And the, the classical example of that is actually Esther. It says uh, Esther in the famous story of Purim in the Megillah, she clearly risked her life because, again, she to save all of, all of the Jewish community at the time. So you see that one is allowed to risk their own life to say, as an individual, but normally you can't. I can't say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give up my life for, for Alan because I love him so much. Right? That, that, that I wouldn't be allowed to do. But, um, nothing personal. Okay, but I'd do it for you. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. You're a pious You're a pious fool. I don't know about the pious part. <laughs> um, but, but the point is, but we're saying you can risk your life to save a whole society, which is what you brought up before. So that, we see that from Esther in the story of Purim, and therefore, say in this case, where you're dealing with Ebola, so that might be another permission, another reason to permit um, risking one's life is is to save society as a whole. Okay, so so I wanted to get to the quarantine question about. Does, it, does that yes. affect your your question about do doctors have a greater obligation? I mean, if I went over to Liberia, I could I couldn't do it much. One or two people, a doctor could. Right. Yes. Yeah, so no question. Score lives. Right. Again, so that's the ability issue. Right. One hundred percent. A doctor has the ability or healthcare work to save many more people. So, right, for you to go over just to hold someone's hand, I'm not sure that's, you know, if you're really saving their lives. You, want to, you can argue psychologically, emotionally. It might be helping them, I don't, but I don't know. Obviously, there has to be science involved to prove, just like there has to be science in the risk factor, there also has to be science in the, are you going to save their life? Because to risk your life, and you're not going to just save their life, you're just going to help them well emotionally, I'm not sure you know, that, that would work. Um, so, so, any other questions before we move on to the quarantine issue? Everyone lost their appetite, I'm sorry. Did you bring Oh, yes, so is a, that is a very good point. Um, the Mitzorah, there's a concept that we find in the Torah. It's little, there's something called a Mitzorah, um, which literally translated means leper, um, which we know today, leper, leprosy is a contagious disease. 
all the commentaries discuss it really wasn't it's not the disease of leprosy although was it contagious or not that's questionable because we do quarantine the leper um, one of the, the Torah does say when the again quote unquote leper in Hebrew the word is mitzora, um we do quarantine that person now the question is it would seem like we're quarantining them because of the contagion part but it's not it's not clear but um, it does discuss and I did see this in one source that when the mitzora came to the synagogue Let's say he came to he came to synagogue. Whatever the case, after his quarantine period was over, they would put him behind the partition, also, because of the concern. So, so that is a very good point. When you say behind the curtain, doesn't mean they put him behind the partition. Yeah, it doesn't mean the ladies. No, 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 Right. But we're not okay, talking not about the, the women's section. <laughs> 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 women and rappers over here. That's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so. And is he scared of his wife? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm scared of the state bar. He <laughs> <laughs> might hear this. Um, okay, so. so uh, as far as quarantine is concerned, the question was, can you quarantine someone? Um, and how do we view someone who has an Ebola or infectious disease where there's a chance that they're going to infect other people? So it's a fascinating case. If amazing. Always, uh, I'm, I'm doing this for 25 years now. It always blows my mind when you find uh, these, these halacha discusses actual cases relevant to contemporary times. I found a response in discussing a real case that happened, actually happened in Israel around, I guess around 15, 20 years ago. You had, it was a HIV positive, a woman who was HIV positive, who was infected by her lover, and she basically openly stated that she wants to infect as many partners as possible. Um, she was, I guess, bitter, whatever the case was, I don't know the details of the case, and she wants to infect um, as many partners as possible before, you know, if she, it seems like she was ill and she was going to die at some point. Um, so the question was posed to the rabbi in Israel. Um, does she have a din rodef, what we call rodef? Rodef is a concept in Jewish law, which like we said before, normally you can't kill to save someone else's life. You can't kill even to save a life. Except, of course, war, like we said, is different. But, but of course, self-defense, you're allowed to kill someone. Someone's coming to, to kill me, of course, I can shoot them. The exception to that rule is of killing to save a life is the law of Rodef. Rodef means literally translated as pursuer, the law of the pursuer, which means that if you see someone, let's say take this case this morning in Israel, if you see someone chasing someone down the street with an axe or a gun to kill them, then even an innocent bystander has a right to shoot the pursuer, to kill the pursuer. This is explicitly in the Torah. The Torah discusses that if um, someone's coming, tunneling, tunneling into your home, we discussed it here in the past, tunneling into your home, to, to rob your home, even then you're allowed to, someone's allowed to shoot them, even an innocent bystander um, who's not going to be affected has the right to kill them um, because the assumption is, first of all, to save the life, obviously, of the victim or that person themselves, since they're committing a capital crime, they're going to commit a capital crime, they have forfeited their life, so to speak. So whatever the rationale behind it is, um, question is, the question was posed, does this woman who has, who's HIV positive and now she's stating that she's going to <coughs> go and, and infect other part, more partners with her HIV positive, 
which are with her HIV, can does can we go? Well, the question was, can we not? Can we kill her technically? But but can we quarantine her? What what law does she have? Do we view her as a pursuer in that sense? She's literally going and with a weapon, loaded weapon, so to speak, and and killing uh, and and wants to kill partners. Alan, what would you say? So you mean you, see, you can lock her up? Well, well it's crazy. It's, it's okay, but she but, may be crazy uh, mad. But say like something, saying, doing something. It's but, not like it's uh, like someone it could be. It's just like having a pistol in her hand. So you that's the question. Is it literally it's HIV positive? I'm gonna go around and strangle people. It's oh, you got your hands. I think there's actually this actually happened in the United States. Yeah. They do sure. they they charge you with a crime if you if they can prove that you knowingly transmitted. Uh, HIV uh, to a person on purpose intent, and you didn't intent. yes with intent. I think, I think they started that because people were going after people with syringes. Yeah, so it, it is blood, a crime. So, so if she does do it, I mean they can't arrest her, you know, just prior by standing. Why not? Why not? Well, no, you have to attempt. But she's so stating she's she's stating yeah, I can say, I mean, it has to be, it has to be, it has to be a real threat. I loaded Uzi and said, I'm pissed at women. And I'm going to kill everyone I can. I can get locked up. I would hope so. It has to be a very credible threat. I mean, it depends how credible she was. I have an Uzi. She's got HIV. Right. So that's a good. It's a good point. The well, question is. Well, quarantine everybody with HIV. No, but not all of them are going yeah, to have to try to infect other people. Not at all. The difference is that most people try very hard to make sure nobody else is getting infected. Right. Well, it's, it's interesting. That's the case of Magic Johnson. Probably true. Not when he found out. I mean, that was before he found out. He cut it down after. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's more discretion. Yeah. All the women he didn't like. Right. No. So, the, but but the point is just to and I'm not sure I know the answer. But the the difference between let's say low Lucy and HIV is one is in general. First of all, there's even HIV. It's not necessarily deadly. It's not for sure a person's going to get infected. You're playing Russian roulette. It's different than, uh, you know, than there's not short, uh, short danger there. Okay, there's a risk, big risk. That's number one. Number two is it's, there's something in Jewish law called grama. Grama means causation, where, where you're not actually doing the act. I'm not doing an act of murder. I'm doing a sexual act. It happens to be the, the consequence of that act might cause someone but to forget, die. It's not that's different than murder. One second, one second. I just want to point. Oh, so that, that, that might be different. That's a weapon. If I'm taking a syringe and going and shooting people up, so that's, that's a weapon. But here, I'm not doing an act of murder. I'm causing someone to die. But it's different, it's different than that. And it might, I might have intent. But in Jewish law, that's called causation. And, and in, America, in Western law, it says there's a similar concept. Causation is not the same as actual murder. It's not first-degree murder. It's, again, you're, you're, you might cause someone's death. Just like it might, it might be, I don't know, the, the various levels. Attorneys here can help us out, but the various levels are not manslaughter, even lower than manslaughter. Loaded with a deadly poison. No, so that's again, that's a weapon. That I'm, I'm, I'm taking. Well, this is clearly a weapon. I mean, if someone did this in the United States and was convicted, they'd be convicted of attempted murder. Again, so it doesn't. That doesn't mean it's a weapon. It, the, the, how we define causation, meaning again, you're not going to be convicted on first degree murder. I, I don't think it was the first degree right, murder. Meaning this, so that's what I'm pointing out. It's not this first degree murder. So taking an Uzi, 
and shooting someone, that's first-degree murder. Sleeping with someone who has HIV, that's not, that, that wouldn't be considered first-degree murder. Why not? The difference I don't know, I didn't make the, the law. The difference between first-degree and other homicides is intent. Well, not only intent, there's a lot of factors involved. There's vehicle, let's say vehicular manslaughter is only manslaughter. It's never going to be first-degree murder. Because? Even if I, even if, you know, I intended or... No, I, I disagree with you. Because you don't aim you. at them. No, if you're aiming you at them, it is. If you're chasing them in the car, yeah. In, with intent to kill Right, okay, so again, the a car is a weapon. But my point is, in Jewish law at least, I can't, I can't speak for non Jewish law, for, for, for Western law, for American law, in Jewish law, there's a concept called causation. That means anytime you're not doing the direct act, so again, it can't be considered, it's not, at least it's not capital murder. It might be, quote unquote, murder, but not capital. Not the same as literally taking a weapon and shooting somebody. I don't, think, no, I don't think if you have HIV because it's positive, good. it's just like going to shoot somebody. You may miss them. You know, you're still attempted murder. Yeah, you tried to kill them. That, her intent, her stated well, intent, was damage. I don't know about killing. Yeah. Right. So again, I, I'm, uh, so, uh, so let me tell you what the rabbi said. There's two. Was, of course, there was two opinions. Um, like you know, a good Jewish law. So the the one where there was an issue. The other question was posed. There was also there's, there's a concept sort of a more general concept called a Moser. It means in Jewish law in, in times past, in history, we lived in societies that uh, weren't just societies. And the, many times you'd have even people in the community would go and, um, so to speak, literally the word means, uh, Moser means a, I don't know, tattletales, the right word, would go and, and give other Jews up to the government, say things about them which weren't true, but, or let's say communist Russia or under the Tsar, where they would actually end up going to Siberia for 30 years for doing nothing just because they prayed or something like that. And it was um, people within the Jewish community many times. So the, the rabbis at the time, it was so, unfortunately it was very common throughout history. They had this problem and therefore they 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 gave them this concept. They uh, they called them, they applied this term of rodef to them. That they are, you're allowed to go ahead and even kill someone who you know has gone to the government in the past and will continue going and, and telling the government, again, obviously it's not applicable in our society, live in a just society, but you live in an unjust society where people are going to the government and getting people arrested, okay? So so the question was, again, in that situation, it would also be, it's not a weapon, and that that's how they were applying, um, sort of applying that uh, logic to here, and that was the question posed. So the rabbi said that, the first rabbi said, his name was Rabbi Yashif, one of the leaders, he died around five, six years ago, one of the leaders in Israel, of, of uh, one of the greatest ethicists alive at the time. He said that he, he would not classify this woman as a rodent, um, as a pursuer. Um, he said, first of all, because again, people are, when you're dealing with, he said that she's sleeping around and people, the men are choosing to sleep with her also. It's not that she, they might, even though, again, I don't know if there was full disclosure, if she told them or not, but he said that since they're making that choice to what he calls, quote unquote, to sin with her, so therefore she, we can't, Call her full category of rodent. That's what he said. I don't understand exactly what he said. I don't agree with what he's saying. Um, that was his opinion. You, know, you don't agree. Uh, maybe, yeah. Say, say if you're 
be like committing adultery. It kind of lets her off the hook a little bit. Yeah, I mean, they're choosing to sin with her. They're making a choice. What I understand is saying you need it's two to tango. You need two to tango. No, he says you need two to tango, so they're making a choice to sleep with her also. She's not forcing any man to sleep with her. They didn't know what the risk was. What if a girl, I mean, if somebody puts a hypnol in her drink? I mean, she's just drinking. I mean, if it were an illegal drink, it would it would be her fault. But if it's a Coca-Cola, then it's not her fault. She picked up the drink. I mean, exactly. She picked up the drink. She chose to drink that. No, so again, over there, they, when we talk about poison, it's always starts off the response. Everyone agrees that's a weapon. Poison is killing someone. He's saying this is... No, that's this not is for killing. That's just for making her more pliable. Well, hypnol doesn't kill you. Oh, okay. I'm not familiar with that. Yeah. I mean, never, never, never used it. Never used it. That's a whole different class. <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole different class. So, so what? So, so then, what's your question? Well, one second. Let me finish No, he. Well, he. He's saying is like, let's say, take take the extreme case. Let's say she's a marriage. It's a case of adultery. So he's saying, therefore, that we can't. There's a certain level of culpability on the fact that this person is choosing to sleep with her. That's it. So you know, we, we can't say. That's what he's saying. He's not such a victim. That's what he's saying. He's not such a victim because he's making his choice. He's making choice. You need two. One second. He's overreached. What he's saying is, one second. You need two to 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 tango here, and therefore, it's not just her. You know, it's, he's he's doing meaning it's it's not she's not forcing him she's not raping him she's willingly he's going willingly along you're right he might not know all the risks involved but that you can't call her he's saying you can't call that uh, again first degree murder and it's not capital murder because what he's saying and road death is, is only capital intent, murder it is my intent to infect people with HIV so they'll die like I'm gonna die and what if she just said, so, I'm going to infect my husband, however she got it, whatever. She okay, so, so I'll get there in a second. I, 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 I want to point out, so for example, because the point is that Rodev, this concept of a pursuer, you can only kill someone, again, if it's capital murder, if he's committing an act of capital murder. So for example, let's say the case of vehicle man, so let's say you see a car plowing into a crowd, and you can shoot the driver to stop the car from plowing into the crowd. It's not a, he's not intentional, okay, the person lost consciousness. You wouldn't be allowed to do that in Jewish law. And I don't know what the laws in American law. Jewish law, you couldn't do that. That's not a rodev, because he's, he has no intent to kill. It's not a capital murder. You wouldn't be allowed to stop the car by killing the person. Because again, that's the issue of you're saving one life. Because you're, you're killing one person to save another life. You're not allowed to do that. Except if it's a ca the person's committing capital murder. So that's where he's coming from. I don't know if that makes it any better or palatable. But. So the other, now the second rabbi did say, the second rabbi, Disagree. Well, no, no, that's not what he was saying, and that's what makes it kind of reprehensible. He's basically blaming the victim. Right. No, no, well, none of us agree with that rabbi. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. We, we, all, we, we don't usually agree. We, I think we all yeah, agree. We don't like that rabbi. Voted him out. Voted off the The point is, no, but what I'm saying is, he says, therefore, it's not, he's not blaming, it's not the issue of blaming the victim. The point is, it's not considered capital murder because it takes two to take because there's an act. Where he not because there, there's a word for that. It's bullshit. No. Let me explain. Rabbi, hey, knowingly, if, if she knowingly said, "Hey, I have HIV," so it doesn't. It's not uh, clear in the response. But it doesn't, she doesn't she explain doesn't, that. 
I'm assuming that because then all the time. You know, <laughs> come up. Look, I have HIV. Without letting them know. Oh, yeah. Okay. So let me explain. The, the point is again, we're categorizing what's considered capital murder. So he's saying this cannot be considered a pursuer because it's not a capital murder because the person is going willingly, willingly along. It's causation. It's not an act of capital murder. So it's a not to blame the weapon. victim. We're, don't they don't, focus they don't on know them. Cool them. But far back better, the person who's the second party doesn't know that the person has AIDS, right? Yeah, I'm assuming that. It's not clear. Right. It's 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 right. Now, I just want to say, so the second rabbi, his name like is... like the girl drinking the drink. Okay. Or, or the girl... Or drinking poison. A few weeks ago, in, in, um, or is it in Singapore, and in so many places, the woman goes, the hooker goes, and this guy, and then he ends up killing her. They go to have sex, and then so, she ends up with her next slip. So it's her fault. So ah, he's not guilty because forbid, she went forbid, there to. God forbid. Um, so again, I don't. I, I'm not, I also don't understand fully. I agree. I, agree. I hear your issues. <laughs> I've never agreed before. <laughs> so now the second rabbi did say. There's another rabbi. His name is Shlomo Zalman Orbach. Um, he has. He discusses a case where this was asked by a physician. Um, as far as if a your question of a wife, a spouse. In this case, a wife had HIV, and she is she obligated to tell her husband um, in this situation? And he rules very clearly: if she doesn't, she is considered a pursuer; that she does have an obligation to tell the husband. And by the way, that is um, the law in, in Texas, I know for sure. Is is you're obligated as a physician if you know, and in Jewish law, if you know anyone who has an infectious disease and they're having relations with someone else, you're obligated to tell that person um, to you know the person that they're dating because. Obviously, again, that goes back to the concept of saving someone else's life. You have the ability to save someone else's life. You, you have an obligation to, to disclose that. Now, even, and what's amazing is in Jewish law, and I think we've discussed this here in the past, in, in Jewish law and in American law, too, um, well, in Jewish law, even if it, it's at the risk of losing your license, let's say, as an attorney, where you're breaking client attorney privileges, or as a physician, where there's HIPAA laws, um, there are cases in Jewish law where, according to American law, you wouldn't be allowed to break the confidence, but in Jewish law you'd have to break the confidence of your client or patient. So it's interesting, there is a difference there, a contrast between um, Jewish Jewish law and, and American law in that, in that situation. Well, I no, did. No, 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 no. Yes. You, you, you are allowed to, and actually in Texas, obliged to break an attorney-client confidence if needed to prevent the imminent infliction of serious bodily injury or death. Um, so first of all, I don't know how that's defined. That's, but but serious bodily injury or death? <laughs> yeah, but I'm saying I'm not sure if someone having uh, HIV. Say, so let's say someone came back from Africa, and there's a question whether they infected or not, and, they're, and you know they're dating, they're going on a date tonight. Are you obligated to go and? You don't and, know. And, you don't know. You can't like think. Oh, right. Exactly. So I'm saying serious bodily injury means where there's imminent. Exactly. So it's not going to be in all applicable in all cases. Right. But if you do know it, then no. If you know that. They have the disease, but let's say that you're not sure. They just t yeah. came back from Liberia. Yeah, it's slander. You know, exactly. Right. So what I'm saying is, but in cases, there are cases in Jewish law where you're going to be obligated to do that. Even you if might, you don't know. No, even even if it's not imminent, is what I'm saying. In American law, it has to be imminent and serious by the You're making distinction imminent versus you know. Mm -hmm. Say that again. You, you you have knowledge, but you're just making a distinction under. Yeah, American meaning how is it's imminent? You're saying or Jewish law doesn't have to be imminent, but you make yes, knowledge. Yes, if there's a danger to, if there's a potential danger to someone's life, that's sufficient, where you'd be obligated to go and and break confidentiality. Yeah. 
that's the, that's where, that's the difference. There's one I found actually a statement from the AMA on HIV, which is a physician may not ethically, it was just as far as treating patients, it says a physician may not ethically refuse to treat a patient whose condition is within the physician's current realm of competence solely because the patient is seropositive for HIV. So it's interesting, the law for physicians, this, this uh, it's not a law, but it's from the American Medical Association, on the judicial affairs opinion is only for HIV. For other diseases specifically, because obviously HIV has a very strong lobby, the 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 the, um, the gay lobby is very strong, and that's why this law is specific for that. It says the physician may not refuse to treat a patient specifically um, solely because the patient is seropositive for HIV. Per, uh, persons who are seropositive should not be subjected to discrimination based on fear, prejudice, which is which doesn't apply. Obviously, this law this not stated about Ebola or other infectious diseases, um, because I guess they're saying that it wouldn't be considered prejudice by not um, by not treating them. But it's just interesting. So there are, as we're saying, differences. I found one other interesting response, and we'll just mention before we take questions. There was a case of a, this was a, a tort case um, in the sixth, trying to figure out what year was it, around <coughs> maybe 1600s, early 1600s. It was written by the Ramah. The Ramah is, is, is an acronym for Moshe Israelis. He was the Ashkenazi amendment to the Code of Jewish Law, which was written by Rabbi Yosef Cairo. So he has many responses. There was a case where someone rented a room. Um, to, in those days, you know, you rent a room in your house, sort of like a border, to a couple. And they signed the lease. And then afterwards, it turned out that the wife of the leasee, the one who signed the lease, um, his spouse had some infectious disease. It doesn't say what the disease was. So the, the owner of the apartment wanted to, to nullify the lease, saying that I would have known your wife has this disease, I wouldn't have rented it. So he says there um, that he cannot nullify the lease. He says actually, and I, again, I don't know what the American law would be in that case, but just based on the fact that someone has infectious disease, he says, he says if, if, if she had it, this is what he says, he makes a distinction, he says if she had the disease, and this is written in the 1600s, he <laughs> says if she had the disease when he signed the lease and he didn't disclose it, then that would invalidate the lease. Again, he's coming from the perspective of the, of the tort perspective. Clearly, a just a monetary question. But but if she did not have, she wasn't infected at the time he signed the lease, and now afterwards she got infected, he says, you have no right to nullify the lease, and and yes, you have to uphold it. He says, and you, he says, don't worry, if you're doing the right thing, he says, God will protect you from mm -hmm. disease, and don't. Uh, what about the other people you're renting to? You may have like, you know, you're an apartment complex. You, you have. Listen, he's not saying you don't. Maybe you move out. Um, he's yeah, not telling you that. He's just saying, as far as tort law, you there, you have no. That's not a. It doesn't invalidate the lease. I think just the fact that someone got an infectious disease doesn't so invalidate the lease. Is what he's saying. It's a mitzvah to honor the lease, even at the risk of your life. No, life, he's not saying. He says, listen, you, you want to move out? You, you have to protect yourself. No, you have to honor the you lease. Can't, you can't right. harass him. <laughs> he's saying you, you can't invalidate the lease as far as tort law. Torah says tort law too. Because he's going from the perspective of tort law, you have no right to invalidate the lease. You listen, you're worried about your health, so you have to move out. You have to keep up all your, your commitment to the lease. That's what he's saying. He's not saying you should risk your life. That's, that's up to you. But he's saying you have no right to invalidate the lease. Based on it's saying it's up to you to risk your life. No. But the, but the same... Halakha is going to tell you you are forbidden <coughs> to risk your life to save somebody else. 
No. However, to honor Elise, you have to risk your no. life. And those no. are no. Sorry, track what I said. I didn't say you have to risk your life. You're, you have to keep. You have to uphold the lease, is what he's saying. Even as far as your life. No, obviously, if, if scientifically, if you go to a doctor, he says keep away from this person, then you're, you have to leave, you're obligated, according to Allah, to leave the apartment. But he's saying is you can't break the lease based on the fact that someone has an infectious disease. That's what he's saying. Now, if you're obligated, meaning if there's a risk, there's a true risk to your life, then of course, you can risk your life, 100%. But it's, you know, it's the perspective here is tort law as opposed to, that's a different question of can you risk your life. So. And that's based on the science. So, phew, it was a tough crowd today. You have been listening to the MP3 project from the Jewish Ethics Institute. For a complete selection of our lectures, please visit our website at j-ethics.org. Shalom. Shalom.